Hi, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. Hi, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, I'm a Nebraskan. I was born in Omaha with the last name of Jungles. I lived in Southern California for a few years, and then, then back to Nebraska, then Illinois, and then Ohio. And I moved to Florida when I was 18, right out of high school. And you ended up at the University of West Florida. And how'd you end up in landscape architecture? Well, I, um, I was always um, an, an avid student of nature. I hiked and camped a lot as a child. And when I was uh, in high school, I worked at a retail uh, landscape nursery. And uh, I learned how to dig trees from the field and ball and burlap them and how to organize plants for sale. And I had a job that I that helped support my ice hockey habit because I was on a traveling hockey team. And that was fairly expensive back then. And uh, then you ended up, where'd you graduate from? University of West Florida? Or University of Florida, sorry. No, first, first I went to school at uh, Miami-Dade North and I got uh, an associate in arts degree. And I took some of the prerequisites that I needed for landscape architecture program, but I was sort of working my way through school. I actually had a job. Uh, first, I was a landscape laborer when I first moved down from Ohio. And I did that for about a year. And I realized I didn't want to just be a laborer for the rest of my life and, and went back to school. And then I got a job at Holliver Beach as a lifeguard, which was beautiful because I only worked uh, four 10-hour days and I was able to go to school full time. Then I got a job at the city of Miami Beach as a lifeguard, which was higher paying and with all kinds of benefits. And I worked there for a few years and I saved up some money, then went to University of Florida, where I was actually at University of Florida for three years because I had to finish other prerequisites that I didn't have because it's in the College of Architecture. And I had to have architectural design, one architectural design, two structures history and theory of landscape architecture, which is where I first heard about Roberto Burley Marx. And I had to get really good grades to get into uh, the landscape architecture program. So it took me another year. So then I was two years in the program. Back then it was a four-year degree, but you know, not many people went through in four years. It's a five-year degree now. And then I graduated in 1981 from the University of Florida. Uh, so tell us um, this book, what was your motivation for writing it? So we're talking about the cultivated wild, right? Or, yes. So we have three monographs. Uh, actually, my daughter helped with most of the writing in the cultivated wild. I really did a lot of writing in, in the colors of nature, and I didn't realize that they would condense and edit about half of what I wrote out, but that was very personal to me. And my daughter was working with me for six years, so she knew the projects well, and, and she would interview me if she had any questions. And she put that whole thing together, which was wonderful, and uh, we're very proud of that book. And we're we're about to do our fourth monograph with Monticelli Press. Oh, so we got more. To, so I got another one to interview you about next. Yeah, that'll probably be a couple of years from now, though. It takes that long. Yeah, and uh, for our audience, since they're just listening, the photography in here is gorgeous. Well, you know, early on in my career, I met an architect named Barry Sugarman. And he told me that it didn't matter how small the project was to always uh, document it very well, you know, from before and after and during. And he says, and always try to get at least a couple great photographs that you can sort of try to get out there and get published. And he said, and that'll do wonders for your career. And I have to say he was absolutely correct. But I have a, one of my best friends uh, was a client, actually, and he did very well in business and sold his business and, and became a professional photographer. So I get to have him come to job sites and photograph with me and I get to hang out with them. And I also work with several other uh, very talented photographers and I love it because, you know, of course the best way to experience a garden is, is to be there. Video is probably the second best way. Photography is probably the third best way, but uh, it's, it's, to me, it's important to get the images out there and to get the idea of the garden out there and to preserve it for posterity and I think that these monographs have been wonderful for that. Clients love to receive them. And uh, it gives you a little bit of, uh, of, of street credit, if you will. 
That's true. And uh, I, I loved your drawings in here and how you montaged your just very quick sketches with uh, CAD, I'm assuming. So what I do is I only work, I'm not computer literate except for, you know, research and an organization and emails and communication. I work, the, I work the old fashioned way where I just draw with uh, tracing paper and Prismacolor pencils and ink. And, and my drawings that you see in there, they're not drawings that were done for really to display or to uh, for any other reason. Those are actually my working drawings that I do layer upon layer until I, you know, and I erase, I, I draw over, and then that's kind of the final outcome of what I have. It's really a working document for me. And then I have a great scanner at the studio. I draw everything to scale, of course. It gets scanned, it gets into the computer, and then my people, like I have a great group of people in the studio, and they'll do all kinds of 3D perspectives. They'll do Vimeo through, you know, walking through the gardens before they're they're built. They, uh, they're amazing. But my own personal uh, relationship is with a pencil and paper, and, and I love drawing. Uh, yeah, I noticed you're, you even did you draw just very beautiful, simple line perspectives um, for a lot of them. Is that what you kind of show to clients too to get them excited about it, or, or how do you work with your, with some of these projects? You know, I don't do that on all of them, but the ones that are a little more complex, like for instance, Golden Rock, I had to build. There was no survey. I had to build a whole site plan just from site measurements. And um, and so those drawings, the sections with uh, section perspectives are really just to explain to the client sort of the, the, the idea of the design. Uh, I normally don't go that far, but my clients were artists in that particular instance. And I knew that they'd appreciate, you know, hand drawings versus uh, computer generated uh, uh, renderings. So but for me, that's also I love doing that, but I don't really have the time to do those kind of drawings much, you know, but for me, it's a joy to do those sorts of drawings. I, I love doing them when I was in school and I still love doing them. And hopefully if I if I'm not so uh, spread thin in the future, I'll be able to do more drawings like that. Um, so let's start with I'm going to start with a couple projects. Um, let me ask you first, uh, what's your favorite project in this book and why? And do you want to know what my favorite child is? I have two of them. <laughs> no, it's, I, I, that's a hard question to ever answer. But I would have to say, like Burley Marx would say, I'd rather do gardens for a lot of people than a few people. I'd rather do public gardens that were open to everybody than, than private residential gardens, although I do love private residential gardens. But I would have to say 1111 Lincoln Road would be in, in the top handful of projects for sure, if not the top. Uh, what was your inspiration for that? How did you start your design process? And um, I was thinking about, you know, you talked about in a book about you like to create interactive spaces. How do you do it? Well, you know, when I was uh, when I was a student, I actually thought that I would move to California after I graduated. So this the summer of my uh, the end of my junior year, I actually went to, on a sojourn out to California and I got to study a lot of Halperin's work and saw some of Frank Geary's early work and and I just was amazed at the way Halperin allowed for the user to choreograph their own. He let the user develop the space. So for me, it's all about it's all about movement through the space. It's all about creating freedom for people to be able to uh, you know sit solo or to have a group of people in one spot and watch. It's all about people watching. So I learned a lot from watching uh, seeing Halperin's gardens. And on that particular project, it was wonderful because the, the client, Robert Winnett, the developer, actually uh, gave a little bit of money for us to work with Herzog and Demeron to try to come up with some concepts whereby the city would close the road that was then, it used to be a Morris Lapidus Road. It was the, the western end of Lincoln Road. And, uh, you know, the development on that, on the 1100 block went large. The buildings were much larger than on the rest of the block. And and they opened uh, the road back up to vehicular traffic on the north side of the lot. Half the block was a surface parking lot. And the other half was a bank building that was sort of like a vault completely sealed to the street. There was a median with a planter in the middle of the road. So you couldn't even cross anywhere except for the two ends of the road. And, um, and then, of course, the large building on the south side with the, with the theater uh, in the wintertime, there wouldn't be much light that would even reach the street. So all the, all the trees in the center of the block were sort of 
not doing very well, which uh, informed a lot of the design. And I was uh, I was working with uh, Christine Binswanger, uh, Binswanger from uh, Herzog and Demeron, and um, at the early stages. And and I actually had a little competition in my own studio where everybody, you know, I only had about five people at the time, but I had everybody do a design for what they thought the block could be. And then I did one and um, they ended up liking what I did, but it was organic, you know, in nature, because based on the way I thought people would want to cross from one side of the block to the other. And, and the whole idea to bring nature into the, into the city block. And she asked me, she said, Raymond, I, you know, I kind of like what's going on here, but what, how do you generate these forms? What is the, what is the synthesis of these forms? And I said, really, it's all about, how you move through the space and allowing freedom to move through the space. And uh, the, the great thing that she did, you know, the, all of the other blocks of Lincoln road uh, have the, 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 uh, the striping, the black and white striping in the center where the road was. And, and on, on the North and South part of the road, it's just concrete sidewalks with some decorative elements. And I was sort of, I felt like I should, follow with the rest of Lincoln Road and she at one time she was looking at a sketches she said but but why shouldn't the plaza go from building to building and I said wow that is unbelievable you know so we started doing studies with with the striping going from from uh to the north edge of the building face to the south end edge of the building face and then initially because it's in a historic zone all the sidewalks uh were mandated to be Miami Beach red, which, of course, as you know, is all different colors of red throughout the city as the concrete fades and is repaired and such. And but my initial designs showed how it would feather the red from from Alton and from Lenox and then eventually go all black and white in the center of the block. And eventually the city said, well, you know, we don't mind if you don't use the red. So that was that was really beautiful. And of course, the pavement patterning was very much influenced by how I'd see Roberto create uh, a pavement patterns that would energize a space. And uh, the bands are of various widths. It's not monotonous of two, you know, even widths through the whole thing. And, um, and the, the materiality, we had, of course, different types of material, but uh, Herzog and Demeron, as well as the developer and myself, loved the texture that Pedro Portuguesa, that they used down in Brazil and also in, in Portugal, with the texture that would give the block. And that's what we ended up going with. And that was sort of the genesis of that. I had seen photographs during the research phase of Carl Fisher having elephants rip mangroves out by the roots. And, you know, it was all about, you know, making, making, developing Miami beach and getting rid of the wild savage nature and, you know, taming it with a shopping street. So I kind of tongue in cheek decided to bring nature and mangroves and, and the Everglades back into the city. So that was, that was sort of my uh, inspiration for the plant palette. And, and I, the way I use trees and the way I place the trees, of course, the floating trees, the floating cypress was sort of uh, inspired by things that I'd seen Dan Kiley do. And, uh, but I, the way I place the trees, I place them where they do well, where they would get enough light in the wintertime to be healthy. So in the middle of the block on the south side, we didn't really have any trees except for some very tall sable palms that would be able to catch light bouncing around in the space. And then, then, then we wanted to create an open plaza in the center that wouldn't be filled with, with umbrellas and tables and chairs like the rest of Lincoln Road. So it could be a, a space that could accommodate uh, different programmatic elements. And, and it does me joy when I go there and I see people bring their kids to play on the block and to play on the stage that I created there uh, to sort of mitigate the, the presence of the equipment vault, uh, and then and then they practice yoga, of course, in the big open space that that the developer uh, put into a covenant that no one could ever uh, fill that space. So it's, it's for per- perpetuity; it'll be an open space for the public. And um, and all of the water gardens, of course, like my you know, I was ex- extremely influenced by Barragan as well as Roberto Burley Marx and. Like Bargan used to always say, you know, the uh, that water is the heart and soul of a garden. So water had to be part of, of what we did there. So we created these live water uh, gardens and we there's four of them, actually, but they're all tied together with one pump system in this vault that we did. That's just behind the, the, the uh, platform or the or the uh, stage, if you will. And uh, and then underneath all these bodies of water, we actually have silver cells and a lot of 
organic soil so that the trees can thrive within that sort of dense paved urban environment. And then you tied it all together with the rooftop sky garden up above. Yes. So I have to say that I didn't make much money on 1111 uh, sidewalk. And then as Robert, as the, the parking garage got a little more developed, Robert, you know, we had a good working relationship. He asked me to, to do the, um, the rooftop of the parking garage. And so I put a number on that. I thought I'd be able to do okay on that. And, and he said, okay, which surprised me, but uh, we ended up finding a way to lose a little money on that too, but it was well worth it because, you know, that was awesome. I have to say that when, uh, when they first came into town, Christine Binswanger with uh, Robert, they were interviewing all the landscape architects in town. I went there in the, to the meeting with just one project that we had done, which was Susan Jones's project down in Key West, which was one of the national award winners, a national award of excellence that we called Island Modern. And I took that and I showed it to her and I said, see this project? I said, we did the garden, but we also did all the architectural elements that you see. And we actually reworked the floor plan and we did all the structures. She said to me, landscape architects do not do structures on Hertzong and Demeron projects. I'm like, oh, my God, I've really blown this interview. So I I left there thinking there's no way I'm going to possibly ever hear back from them. So I was really surprised when they called me back and they'd selected us, you know, so that was, that was wonderful. Big event yeah. in my life. I, uh, I noticed, yeah, you tend to go, or I, I tended to pick yours too, that go up to the rooftops. Do you like the rooftops or do you like the ground? Well, listen, I always prefer to plant trees where they could do well for hundreds of years. Anytime you do a, a rooftop garden, is you're, you know, you don't have endless amount of time there. It's going to require more maintenance. It's going to require more care. Uh, we've, we, we've actually got plants that thrive there. We had very shallow uh, soil depths, uh, but we used a lot of vines and just a few trees where we could get a little bit of a deeper soil depth. But I have to say that we ended up doing all the stru- designing all the structures in the mall, and we ended up designing all the structures except for the architecture on the rooftop. So we ended up with this great working relationship, great collaboration, and it led to other projects like the 1111 extension and the Jade Signature that we just completed up in Sunny Isles with them. And they're they're just they're enjoyed. That's one of the great things about. Somehow I got dumb lucky moving down to Miami when I was 18, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it was just the place to be to where it is now, this great international city where all these great architects come into town. And there's a lot of great architects here in town. And I get to work with all of them. And it's a, for me, you know, if I can learn something from these great minds every day, I'm very happy. I love to research and I love to learn. Uh, yeah, I noticed that uh, with you, know, isn't it? formative for you for these projects when you're i didn't know when we started this that you know you started off just like uh digging in the dirt and knowing your materials well you know the thing is that i was always i guess a man of the soil and i was always a lover of plants and nature but i have to say that you know i didn't take a job when i I did i ended up not going to california because i was determined i was going to california but then I've sort of worked my way through school doing carpentry and then little gardens here and there. And then I got a pretty big garden towards the end of my senior year that I had to continue working on after I graduated. And then just one thing led to another. Then I got married. Then I had a kid. Then I had two kids. Then I had a house. And I had two houses. And then I had, then I got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was, it's all been a journey. And I'm glad I didn't move to California because I, I I don't know what I'd do in a place that doesn't have thunderstorms. Doesn't have some weather. Um, now, that's true. There was, which one was it? It's David's Garden. It's in the Bahamas. Yes. Yeah, so um, after I moved back from Key West, I had a, I had a really big project. I, I only had, I had two people in Key West, an AutoCAD draftsman who was also a musician who would come into work often hungover and often wouldn't come into work. I had Craig Reynolds, who's uh, a protege of mine, who started as an intern and now is the Key West landscape architect. And I had David Odishu, who is my draftsman, that I would send FedEx packages up from Key West almost every day. It was primitive back then. You know, it's not like today. There was no Internet until 91, you know. And um, so, oh, no, 2001 is when it all happened. But uh, David Ozenow is a licensed, even though he never went to school, he's a licensed landscape architect. 
because he was able to be grandfathered and take the test. And uh, so it, it seems like you're talking about like when we talk about weather, what I was thinking of is that your a couple of your projects, you may note that they stood up very well to a lot of hurricanes. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm, I'm sorry I got sidetracked because you asked about the David's Garden, but I'll, I'll definitely right. answer that question. But so I came back up to Miami and I had this really big project in Antigua working with Cesar Molino, the a local architect, and Alan Stanford, a Texas billionaire. And we ended up doing a 27-acre island there where we designed everything except for the buildings, you know, all the site planning, working with Caesar, of course, in collaboration, but all the hardscape elements and the landscape. And I had a very small firm, so I just started adding people who could really help me with, with the computer you know, and putting everything that I was drawn in computer. And they happened to be all architects that I was working with because we do a lot of hardscape elements. And so the David's Garden, Bob Davids had come and Bruce Ora, who was my uh, college roommate, came to help us a little bit when we first moved back to, to Miami. And he said to me one day, oh, you know, I met this great guy, this guy, Bob Davids. He's got a place in Treasure Key in the Bahamas and, and he really wants to work with you. And here he's already given us a retainer check. And I said, give it back. I said, I, we can't even do everything we have already. We can't take any money from anybody. I said, I, I just can't do that project. Please just tell them, you know, I don't want to fail. I don't want to do a bad job. So tell them thank you, but no thank you. So Bruce goes back to him and, he's, and, he, and, he, and he comes back to me and he says, well, you know, Raymond, Bob Davids, all he, all he asks is that he can get uh, five minutes of your time. And, and, and he will take the check back. I said, fine. I guess that's a reasonable. He said, Raymond, you're going to really love this guy. So... So I have a meeting with Bob Davids and he says to me, Raymond, Raymond, what if I told you that I have no deadlines, I have no budget, all I want is the finest quality you could possibly dream up? It completely disarmed me, so I had to take the project. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he, was a, he was a very design savvy guy and also he, uh, he's a great uh, creator of, of um, cultures and business. He went to China and he built a factory. There's actually a a TED Talks on Bob Davids, and he just recently uh, uh, published a book called Leadership Without Ego. And he was sort of my business mentor when I was went from a three-person firm to the 23-person firm we are right now. I, I think all the time of the things that he taught me. And the only other mentor I ever had was Burley Marks. And of course, he was my design inspiration and a friend and, and just completely changed my life by seeing his work. Uh, first in the book, The Tropical Gardens of Roberto Burley Marx. But the David's Garden was very interesting because we do a lot of work on waterfront properties in very tough environments where you're going to have hurricanes, you're going to have salt spray, you're going to have really inorganic soils, you're going to have uh, a rapid drainage. So what I like to do is use plants that would normally occur there in nature. You know, that's really the secret to my success is, is like design with nature, as they taught me with Ian McHarg's book at the University of Florida. Uh, there's no better way to do it. You know, you should do design with the region that you're in. You should design with plants that, that the millennium, millennial, millenniums have like developed to be able to live in that particular environment. Plants that will create habitat for the local uh, fauna. And that's sort of our secret to success. I mean, we're going more and more in that direction, like the Leon Levy Native Plant Preserve and Eleuthera is all native plants. I'm not prejudiced against plants that will do well in our environment from other subtropical regions that don't need excessive irrigation, fertilization, or maintenance. I would just always give preference to a native plant if I'm looking for a plant that will do a particular thing. But Bob Davids's garden was interesting because he was such, an, such a brilliant client and uh, already knew so much about what he wanted. But, you know, I actually designed his swimming pool on the job site. Like I know I've, I've read about this architect from Mexico called Marco Aldaco. And he would always go to the job sites and he'd always lay twigs out and he'd always capture the views from, you know, on the site. He'd camp on the site and, he'd, and he did these amazing Palapa type houses in these amazing uh, mountainsides of Mexico looking out over the sea. And so I've always felt like the, the design has to be inspired from the site. You have to really know the site. And that's one thing I think I'm really good at is perception of site that I was probably trained for in school. Uh, but I was always very observant of nature. So actually, I, I sketched out the, the pool on the job site and I measured it off the existing structures. And then I did a drawing and 
I showed it to Bob Davies. He says, yeah, he says, that's pretty cool. But what if, what if part of the pool went out on the beach? I said, Bob, you can't do that. That's not legal. He says, no, Raymond. He says, you know, you can do it. He says, I believe me. He says, I'll pay the fine. (laughs) So, um, He actually brought a little piece of the pool out and incorporated it into the seawall. So it's wonderful. You can swim to this one part of the pool and you can kind of put your arms up on the pool deck and look up and down the beach. And uh, it, it is behind the seawall. It's actually part of the seawall. <clears throat> and then we did a, an infinity edge, but we did the infinity edge back towards the garden. So it would activate the whole garden between the, the architecture that he had built there, which was sort of a, a rustic sort of a, a, they call it the thatch house because all the roofs are thatched from the local uh, cocoa thrinax palms and, and, and sable palms. And, um, and he used a lot of, of stone of the local stone in the architecture and the house, the existing house that he started with was really a nothing sort of a forties or fifties house that, that he didn't want to make a big structure and he wanted to live outside most of the time. So he, he butterflied the house and he did, you know, a, a, an outdoor kitchen, an outdoor living room, an outdoor, you know, dining room, and which was all on deck right on the beach, which was a brilliant move. So that house right there is, is truly an indoor outdoor house. And, and Bob, you know, then we ended up going to Bali and helping him uh, with his house there. And he worked with Made Wajaya. And, you know, so we went to the site, we helped conceptualize what happened. And Made kind of took over from there and designed the architecture and the final gardens there. But Bob would bring, you know, amazing, uh, amazing artifacts and furniture from Bali because he was really he loved uh, in the little spaces that he had. He loved to saturate it with detail and texture so that your eye was was never at rest except for where he wanted your eye to be at rest. And um, I even went to Vietnam with him. It was just it's just a wonderful. He's become a very good friend of mine. So it's just, uh, you know, clients. That's what I love about landscape architecture. You get to meet people that you'd normally never meet and they can really enrich your life and teach you things. Oh, well, I, I noticed that, um, well, let's go back a second. Cause I certainly wanted to ask you about too. You just talked about the butterfly concept. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, simply he took the square footage he had in the house and he duplicated it outside. So that's what I mean by butterfly, you know, butterflies wings are symmetrical. Uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit symmetrical, but we never really design anything with too much symmetry because, uh, you know, with hurricanes and everything, it's, you're just asking for trouble when you do, you know, symmetrical plantings and things like that, like rows of the same size tree. I learned that from a very uh, well-known landscape architect in Miami, Jonathan Seymour, who was actually the father of, of a lot of landscape architects, a lot, a lot of landscape architecture that was done in Miami. He retired right when I was sort of coming into my own at my early stage of the career, but we became friends. But he always told me that, Raymond, don't ever do, you know, symmetry in, in the tropics because you might not be able to get equipment in there. And then, you you know, you have some 40-foot royal palms come down and you can only put a 10-foot royal palm back in there. It's going to look weird. And I just said, that makes a lot of sense. And I was never really into symmetry much anyway. My our design aesthetic is really more about asymmetrical balance. There should be structure in a garden, but we like to create structure in a garden that's not that uh, perceivable, you know, something that's a little more subtle and, uh, you know, with a very strong hardscape like Burley Marks would do. But the plantings we try to make look like they've sort of always been there. They're not fussy or, you know, you know, really thought out combinations of plants. It's more we try to create a landscape that looks like it could exist and that should exist with little care and, and be very sustainable. And do you, I had a question. Now you, of course you talk about, you know, designing on site a little bit. Do you design more on paper in the office first, or do you design, do you take that out on the site and change things or kind of what's your workflow? Well, you know, I, I would never design anything unless I've been to the site and I've felt it. I, I, I have to say that, you know, I, I'm not very good with human names. I'm pretty good with plant names, but one of the things I am good at is perceiving space. And I think I had some great teachers in perceiving conditions on-site and off-site. And I sort of have a photographic memory with that. But I also document very well with, uh, I, I do what I call inventory the site by taking photographs from every possible angle. You know, where's the low point? Where's the high point? You know, how's the drainage working? You know, what are the good soil types? What is the surrounding vegetation? What vegetation this area does really well? So I do a lot of that. 
and and then uh, then I uh, then I I, just, I think I procrastinate really. I, I spend as a little time on that particular project as I can. I've always got a, a lineup of projects I'm working on, but I think that once I get those thought processes going in my unconscious mind, uh, things sort of start to develop a little bit. And so when I finally start to draw, I already have a pretty good idea of the site. I already have a pretty good idea of most everything. You know, I have to really understand uh, everything that you can see and everything you can't see. What are the, what are the regulatory bodies that you can and cannot do? Uh, what what is the architecture? You know, a lot of times we design gardens where the architecture is, isn't built yet. We have to be able to understand architecture from architectural drawings and whatever the architects present to us. We have to really understand what the clients want. What are their goals? Because we're not designing gardens for ourselves. Like Bob Davis would say, you know, you're not an artist. Artists design what they want for themselves when they want to. You're a designer, you're a problem solver. No, it's not like there's not a creative aspect to that. And it's not like there's not an artistic aspect to that. But never forget that you're a problem solver. You're working for someone to solve their problems. So they have to have their input known. So you have to know what the client wants. You You have to really know what the site has and what it says to you and know the architecture and know what, you know, what the unseen forces are. And I don't try, I don't start anything till I have all that information. I have a big pre-designed checklist that, that I have a great team. They help put everything together for me. I love to go to job sites with, with my team members. I mean, now it wasn't like that in the past, but, um, so I like everybody to be on. I love that interaction of people saying, "Hey, did you see that?" What you know? But one thing I have to say is that nothing starts just from a, a, bl- a blank piece of paper on my drawing board without having everything else in my mind that's been cooking for a little while. And you cook it up. It seems like most of your gardens, um, I was thinking about, have three big basic elements. You've got water. You've got a lot of big stones, and then you've got native plants. Uh, that seems to be a theme throughout this book well you know i i have to say that um we do a lot of on-site layout and uh you know of course hardscape elements that have to be permitted and have to be bid and have to be built by others don't change much at all but uh we like to reserve the right to uh, make changes with the landscape and the planting because many times years have gone by since the plans have been drawn there might be great new plants that we found I'd love to, just like you would build a house, you have to get the foundation right before you do everything else. So our foundation is always figure out the circulation, the drainage. You know, we always control the hydrology on the site to make sure we move the water to where the plants can use them instead of dumping it into a storm drain somewhere. And we, uh, circulation is critical because we want to maximize the amount of experiences that people can enjoy in the garden. And then the trees are the next major part. You know, the trees are, are the, the, other, the other element that creates the, the, the structure of the garden that defines the spaces. So when we go to a job site and we lay out the plants, the hardscapes usually always, you know, at least in this rough state, set up. So we plant the big trees first. And then as the job progresses, we'll do the next layer of the understory trees and the understory palms. And then we'll do the final layers of the uh, intermediate, you know, the medium sized shrubs and, and, and plants. And then finally the ground covers and the low and, and maybe grass or gravel or sand. Water is always very critical into garden. And having started the business uh, because I never worked in a landscape architect's office, uh, as a design build firm, I, being here in Florida where we have the wonderful Everglades and the ability to have amazing, uh, you know, water is not a rare resource here. And water is such an important part of the environment here as far as providing habitat for, and you can really expand your biodiversity of plants and animals in a, if you have water. But I must say that for the for the longest time, that was the first thing that was value engineered out and like kind of cut out of the projects where the live gardens I always wanted to do that I'd seen Roberto be able to do down in Brazil. Because you have to remember, the beginning of my career as a design build landscape architect was also informed by the fact that the reason I didn't take a job was so that I could seek out mentorship with Burley Marks and go down to Brazil and 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 kind of shadow him and see the amazing uh, work that he was doing and amazing architecture that was being done and 
and interact with the wonderful clients that he had there. So I, 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 in my own way, was doing these mini forms of the great things I saw in Brazil. And eventually I was able to, to win the battle and have the water gardens with live plants and animals. And, and so, yeah, like I said, water is the heart and soul of a garden. Now, I became, you know, Florida is very flat. So uh, the, a, a change of a few feet in elevation feels huge here. So I became what I, I had this phase that when I did the hammock garden uh, in, in uh, Coral Gables uh, before I moved down to Key West and when I was first living in Key West, uh, there was a site, it was 20 feet above elevation. It was all the oolitic limestone. So if you start, if you, if you scrape the first three or four inches of organic decayed leaves and, and matter off the top, what you encounter is the, is the um, substrate or the bedrock, which is oolitic limestone in Miami. It's different in the Florida Keys. That's, uh, that's of course, fossilized uh, keystone, fossilized ancient coral reef. And you go a little farther and then you start getting to coquina, and uh, and other types of stone and sand, but so we started uh, we started digging out these blocks of of oolite instead of just chunking it with a backhoe into little pieces that become you know good for road bases. We started digging out masses of these things and using them for for sculptural elements and for retention walls and things like that. And we would dig down to the water table and end up with a, a fifteen foot cliff and dig ten feet underneath it, and then you'd have a cliff you could jump off of into deep enough water, and and that was a very that was a very important project in in our career, and I called it my my burrowing phase because we I don't know I guess I was influenced by I know for sure um, Burley Marks, but uh, James Irwin, you know the people were doing uh, landscape you know art with uh, with with forms of of nature and the spiral jetty and things like that. But it just seemed like um, that, that rather than use a piece of equipment as a destructive force for clearing rainforests like they do in Brazil and everything, we started using uh, pieces of equipment to create more variety and the, the, the topography. And we took what was an old uh, mang- mango uh, orchard and lawn and turned it into uh, three acres of just a botanical paradise using mostly native plants. And uh, that project is one of my favorites. That would be up there in the same handful of five as 1111 Lincoln Road. That sounds awesome. So, like with your projects, I would like to go to the modern, Miami modern. And I don't know what intrigued me about this, but one of the things that did was your picture window. It actually fooled me for a minute. Uh I looked at that and I was like, is that a picture or is that, am I looking at plants outside and how you chose like the inside and outside of this project? Could you tell us more about how did you get this project and uh, your design process with it? So you're talking about Miami Beach Modern on, uh, yes. So that project was one where it was a little, it was a, it was at the time we were doing much larger projects and it was a fairly small piece of property. It was a corner lot. I've always liked corner lots with, you know, nondescript architecture. It had good bones. It had a good, a good proportion and scale, which is critical to design, but there was nothing that I, I the client was after me. You got to come look at this garden. I saw photographs of what it looked like and I kind of put it off. And then finally I went and I met the client's, and when I walked inside the house and I saw this amazing collection of, of wonderful antique Brazilian furniture and, and just everything that they had was, as Roberto would call it, a, a, an object of poetic emotion, I just realized these people are like amazing. So I, I took the job and it was just had a little circular drive in the front. And through research, I found out that, that I could add a little pergola in front. And then, of course, I all of the things we try to do in our gardens is to fuse the architecture with the fuse, the built in the natural environment to fuse the interior and exterior space to meld it all. That's what landscape architects do best to make it feel as pedestrian as possible and make the presence of the automobile become as secondary as possible. So that was the whole genesis of, of, of creating a, an architecture that didn't exist to create elements outside the architecture. So we did all kinds of models. Then 
Then they came to me once and said, you know, uh, our floor is really bad. We need to replace the floor. Do you know a good building contractor? So we gave them a building contractor and they brought in an architect, very talented person. And then they saw that it was getting to be very expensive. And they said, wait, wait a minute. We really want you to look at what we can do with this house. Because they knew what I had done at uh, Island Modern with uh, Susan Jones down in Key West. So we actually um, re-envisioned the floor plan of the house. We were able to change all the doors and windows to simplify it and to create as large of windows as possible to fuse the interior and the exterior. And one of the things we always try to do is, like, I was very influenced by Thoreau when I was younger. is just, like, simplify, simplify, simplify. Not with the plants, but with the hardscape elements, with the bones, but the plants, I love. I love variety. I love texture. I love plants that work together. I love creating as much habitat as possible. But uh, so, so we ended up doing. You know, there was a half of the backyard. There had a pool that was way too big. Half the backyard. Uh, it wasn't a garden. It was a yard at the time. It had a generator and all the AC equipment down on the ground plane. So we came up with this idea of a of a massage pavilion that we could put all the equipment up on the roof so that all the ground plane would then be garden. And it was a sort of a very transparent box there. So, uh, you know, it was like a, a glowing cube in the garden. We made the pool smaller, but more, more articulated, created these great uh, outdoor living spaces off the key rooms, like the master uh, bedroom and the, and the kitchen. And, uh, and we use, one of the things we like to do is we don't like to, we don't like to have a hierarchy of material where you have, the cheap material in the driveway and the expensive material for the pool coping. We like to use a material throughout the site that unifies the site. So we used concrete, which is sort of our natural stone here in Florida uh, with some handset uh, river rock and, and uh, the detailing. That's one thing that we do is we really pay a lot of attention to detail. As I said, you know, I'm very influenced by uh, great architecture and by what's going on in the world of architecture and design and art. And, um, and uh, as Mies van der Rohe said, God is in the detail. So we spend a lot of time on that. It's not inexpensive. That was actually a very expensive garden, but, but they didn't want to be on the water and not have privacy. They wanted a really nice place for their family and a really nice place to live that was sort of indoors, outdoor, everything was connected. And they gave us a lot of leeway of what we wanted to do. They were very open, receptive, and we worked with a great team of of architects to help us do the contract documents and the builders and the clients were fantastic. So a little project like that took a lot of time and effort. And it's also got to be in my handful of favorite projects, I must say. Uh, we both have the same taste. I, uh, I'll tell the audience it's page 75. I, um, I was previously a professional photographer and I, I did a double take on it because uh, you put a nice frame around the window and I'm like, that's really the outside. Well, you know, we did corner windows from uh, key rooms so that there as much of the outdoors could come in as possible. We did frosted lower windows so you wouldn't see the equipment outside the windows. So you maximize your aperture of nature and let the, let the green of nature and the sunlight come into the spaces. Uh, we took a Florida room that could be totally closed off with we repeat. One of the things that we do that one of the things Burley Marks would say, you know, like a great painter will will keep repeating, you know, the palette of the paint material and like create an overall composition with it. He would call it linkage. You know, you you re, you don't do one thing in the backyard, one thing in the side yard, one thing in the front yard. You know, you use you repeat elements, you create a rhythm uh, that that begins to tie the entire site together. So for us there, it was aluminum, you know, aluminum slats that became the, the thing that we put in front of the existing architecture that was very heavy and, and, and uh, you know, concrete block construction so that the overall, everything that you see that we edited that you see from the garden spaces, you know, the building's really garden architecture and it's very light and airy. So we completely transformed the look of, of the building. The interior spaces were great, high roof, high ceilings, you know, nice volume, but big, the maximum apertures to the outdoor spaces. Yeah, it's beautiful. I was sitting here going, I just would, I saw the pictures. I would just love to walk through here. We had it on the Miami Beach, uh, Miami Beach Botanical Gardens garden tour this last year. The client's been very awesome about that. You know, I try not to ask clients to let strangers walk through their most sacred sanctuaries. That's why I like to do public gardens so that I'd like people to be able to see our work. But, you know, it's kind of a hard ask for me to get people 
into these private gardens unless unless the clients say no i really want to share with people then then that that's a that's a great client right there i have to tell you oh well i hope they do it again because i would definitely like to walk through this one i'm sure she'd allow that <laughs> um and talk about art and burley marks and i want to jump to if i'm saying her name right is it eloise or eloise uh pavilion, the eloise pavilion. i loved this picture with the starry nights into the pool. It so reminded me of Van Gogh. You know, that's so interesting because Burley Marks, when he was 19, went to his family, uh, all went to Germany so they could have a, like a two-year cultural uh, bath and just take in all the European culture. And they were in Berlin and, and, and Burley Marks was actually a music student at the time. His, his older brother became a very famous conductor and, and a great concert pianist. And his mother was an opera singer and his dad was a, was a, a German uh, industrialist uh, businessman. And uh, so he took the whole family there and, and, and Burley Marx would say when he saw Van Gogh in the museums there, it, it made him decide he wanted to be a painter. And, uh, and who doesn't, who isn't impressed by star nights and Van Gogh's, amazing uh creativity and and just revolutionizing you know art at that particular moment in time and that's what i feel like an artist really should be of their time and they should be relevant and and where art is at the time we don't really believe in repeating past styles for for uh for fashion or just or for resale value or anything like that we always try to try to strive to be relevant but so the whole idea is the pool is fairly shallow. So how do you light a pool that's on a rooftop? That's a that's a roof garden that is uh, on on the beach on I think it's the twentieth floor. Uh, the the existing garden that was there was really atrocious. You know, it didn't it didn't have any uh, use of space. Uh, there was no circulation where you there were different levels and you never engaged with the lower level. So we came up with the idea of creating this pool that would like go right up to the edge of the building. And uh, and then the idea of, of uh, the whole pool is tiled, but having fiber optic light in between the tiles. It's really a magical feeling. And the, the name Eloise Pavilion was actually that was that was the name of my client's dog. And they considered this uh this vacation home of theirs to be Eloise's pavilion. <laughs> and so that was also, you know, we used all native beach plants up on the roof. It's the only thing that's really going to survive in a location like that. You know, we don't normally like to do roof gardens, but we've been able to do some pretty great roof gardens. So, you know, if, if it's uh, if it's challenging and it's a great opportunity, we'll do it. Like the Ford Foundation in New York. I mean, who we, we've been turning away interior gardens for as long as I can remember but how do you turn away re, redoing, uh, re, you know, re, in, rebuilding Dan Kiley's vision, but with plants that would actually survive in the middle of the city where it gets to be crazy cold and snowy. And that's a project we just finished this last year or so. That was a, a great rewarding project, I have to say. I, this is my favorite question to ask. Is there any other favorite projects you could tell us about? Well, you know, I have to say that, you know, Burley Marx was uh, very pivotal in my entire career and he gave me a lifetime of, of, uh, of influence and inspiration. And we just, well, you know, I'll tell you a couple more. <laughs> we just finished this great garden at the New York Botanical Gardens that's open through the end of September. It's a temporary garden. It's a, a tribute to Roberto Burley Marx. They're, they're having probably the best, most inclusive uh, show of Roberto Burley Marx's of, of of his uh, plant exploration, his environmentalism and and uh, preservationism, and and his paintings and his uh, and his landscape design. He was a, they call it the total Roberto Burley Marx, a total work of art, the living art of Roberto Burley Marx. And, and we've been working for three years on this exhibition that just opened last week. And I've been to New York a lot this year with the, the Ford Foundation and, and this garden that just uh, that just opened. I was there till like this afternoon and they're having all these great events there. And everybody's there's so many articles being published right now. And and Burley Marx is getting <laughs> 
all this amazing resurgence of, of, uh, of, of his legacy. And I'm very proud about that and very happy to be part of that. So that's a, that's a big one. I have to, I, it wouldn't be right if I didn't mention the Brazilian garden at the, at the uh, Naples Botanical Gardens, where it's also a, a tribute to Burley Marx, where we did a lot of research and we used only Brazilian plants. And, and you know, we love doing botanical garden work. We've done some at Fairchild. Obviously, Miami Beach Botanical Gardens are a favorite of mine. But at Naples, we were able to get involved in that from scratch. And uh, we ended up do- we've ended up doing three gardens there, the Visitor's Center and Visitor's Center Garden with Lake Flato out of Austin, Texas, some of my favorite architects. And we did the Florida Garden recently, which is our last garden. It was built just before the hurricane nailed it. But it's looking great again, where we actually took a garden that was built that was never very successful and completely re-envisioned it. It's the Florida garden. So, And there's all this great native Florida landscape that was all Melaleucas that they restored to a nature conservancy bird habitat where you can look off into the distance and see, you know, pine forests and cypress heads and just like amazing things. And we actually opened this garden up to those views. And the whole garden ended up being about the surrounding landscape and it was you know the the concept of it's very similar to uh the the brazilian garden where we maximized the the elevation that we could create by you know that was still all ada accessible with a maximum five percent slope oops are you there i'm still here i'm sorry (laughs) that's okay I heard some noise in the background. I wanted to quiet down. That's okay. Keep going. ADA accessible. Yes. Yeah, so, so you know, we create, like I said before, gardens are all about maximizing uh, the, the garden participants' experiences. So, you know, you have multiple uh, sight lines. You have multiple vistas, incredible plant material you move through. And working with botanical gardens staff, like at Naples Botanical Gardens and the New York Botanical Gardens, you're working with such like-minded people who have great knowledge of plants and great passion for plants. And then I just kind of fill in the design aspect of it. And it's all a collaborative effort. Uh, And, you know, just like collaborating with architects on projects, I have to say, I love collaborating with botanists and scientists and plant people on projects. It's, it's such a, such a rewarding experience. I can tell. And well, where did you find your love of native plants? How did, how do you think that uh, that attracts to you for design and personally versus ornamentals? Well, so I've always been, I've always been a, a admirer and a student of nature. And what always moved me is I, I, I never really went to gardens per se. I would always go to the wild places I could find. I sort of always grew up on the, on the outskirts of, of human development. So I'd walk along the railroad tracks and f- try to find, undisturbed landscapes and natural waterfalls and streams and rivers and things. That's what really moved me, you know, to sort of be outside of the fray. And, um, and so I was always attracted to that kind of landscape. So, but I'd say the first, first time I did a project that was primarily native plants, I was doing a project right out of school in Key West called 1800 Atlantic condominiums. And there really wasn't a budget for irrigation uh, and, you know, and the soil wasn't good. It was all sort of fill and just that that sort of inorganic material. And um, and I met a guy who was who, who was a, a native plant nut. John, I can't remember his last name right now. And he told me about he says, Raymond, you should use only native plants here because nothing else is going to live. And he says, and I tell you about this nursery. It's like uh, there were two two nurseries then at the time. This is 1981. One was called um, uh, Tropical Greenery, Don Gans Nursery, and the other one was um, was Native Tree Nursery, which is now owned by Leonard Abbas. And so I went to these native nurseries, and I met these people who were passionate about native plants, especially Florida Keys uh, uh, hammock plants, and did a lot of research and uh, bought a lot of plants, and we irrigated them just enough to get them going. And that that's still a great project right now, where there's plants that were used. Uh, at that time that you would never really see many of them in one place. And I'm very, very happy to see when I go to places that I was the first one to start using native plants where, where there's a lot of native plants being used in the landscape industry. And it makes sense because 
when Wilma hit Key West and, and the whole island got inundated except for Solaris Hill with salt water for a while, you know, all those ornamental plants that didn't have any salt tolerance, they all died. But my gardens did really well. <laughs> that, was, that, was a, that was a very good uh, advertisement for native plants. But I've just, it's always been a passion. You know, why not plant a plant that's going to bring birds and butterflies and you know, insects for the birds and just create a living garden, not a sterile thing that's just to be looked at, something that, that creates life for other life forms. Oh, yes, that's true. And uh, it's it's good for people and plants. You know, I this is a, an off-the-ball question a little bit. Now, I did interview Chip Sullivan recently, and um, when you talked about the railroad, it reminded me of uh, a section in his book, too. So I'm going to ask you, um, what kind of toys, like I actually had a my dad had a train set and we did that. Did you have growing up, did you have Lincoln logs, train sets? What kind of toys did you have? That would make you, you know, a hard I question. I, <laughs> I had a drum set when I was in sixth grade, but I, I, I misbehaved a little bit. So my stepfather took it away from me. You know, I, I was uh, actually, a, I'm a frustrated musician and that I don't play music, but I love music. It's a huge part of, of my everyday existence and everything. Chip's a super talented guy. I, I love his drawings, but you know, I played by, I just played by going out in nature. That's what I did. You know, I would swim, I'd hike. I, I didn't really, I can't, can't really, really remember having toys other than bicycles and things like that. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. So, um, it kind of, we kind of, well, I was outside a lot too, but I guess that was our one inside toy was, uh, making landscapes out of train sets. Um, but I, I could, that, that's that's a form of landscape architecture. <laughs> that's true. We had to dodge the Christmas tree. Yeah, that's, I, I have seen those. I never had one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get you one for your office. Okay. <laughs> for, for it to inspire creativity when it's when it's raining outside. Um, well, thank you so much for being here today. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, can you tell us uh, and our audience a little bit about uh, what you're working on now? Well, as I was saying, we just finished the, uh, the, 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 the garden. We're the guest designers at the New York Botanical Gardens. We have a slew of hospitality projects, some great uh, – private residential projects, which which constitutes probably 40% of our business is still private residential gardens. I would never give that up. It's a little challenging, but it's super rewarding. And it's a great laboratory for, you know, there's more but better budgets for developing details and concepts. Uh, we have, uh, we try to diversify in the studio and have as much as possible. We, you know, we just finished our own studio garden, which is a uh, a whole city block in, in Coconut Grove of mostly native plants to try to try to create a demonstration garden of our philosophy of, of creating habitat, at, you know, in the urban area, trying to bring nature back where it was just kind of stripped off the face of the earth uh, based on, you know, greed and maximizing property values and simplicity of developing. That's sort of, that's what we're totally against. And um, uh, we're, we're working on uh, some hotels like the Raleigh Hotel we've been working on for for years, but it looks like it has a new impetus and it's going to move forward. We love working on the beach. We're doing a we're doing a park, uh, a North Beach right now in an area where I used to be a lifeguard. That's right now is pretty much all road and, and parking. Uh, it's called Ocean Terraces, Seventy uh, Second Street and North. I was actually a lifeguard there in uh, nineteen seventy. Six when it snowed in Miami, the only time I think that's ever happened. Uh, you could probably Google it and find out more about that. It was kind of a crazy thing. There was no Google back then either. But uh, so we're, I'm doing some great projects in Mexico and Monterey, Mexico and San Luis Potosi that are pretty much family compounds. Uh, that We have so many great projects right now. It makes my head spin. I love it. You know, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a workaholic, as my wife would describe it, but I don't really feel like it's work. You know, I just feel like it's a great opportunity to be able, it's a great privilege to be able to work on the sort of projects we have. I have a great group of people. I think they're all enjoying working there. We, there's a super lot of talent in there and everybody's sort of learning from each other and we're all growing as a team. So um, I, I, 
I kind of consider, I, I don't think I've ever had it as great as we have it right now. And it's just a real joy to have these amazing clients and amazing projects and to be living in Coconut Grove. My my home is two, two miles from my studio. So I believe in uh, commuting as little as possible. A lot of my people live right in Coconut Grove where they take the Metro Rail or ride bicycles. Uh, it's kind of a culture that we're trying to create based on what I saw at Burley Marx's uh, atelier back in, in Laranjeras in Rio and Bob David's, uh, Bob David's idea about, uh, you know, egalitarian leadership. Uh, and, you know, we're not perfect, but we get better every year and we've learned from our mistakes. And like Burley Marx said, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes uh, because that's how you learn. And he says that every, every, every effort is valid. Not all of the efforts are valid, but if you're not afraid to make mistakes, you're not going to learn. And the other thing that he would say to anybody interested in design and nature is just stay curious. So I think maybe we should leave it at that. Oh, I love that. Stay curious and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Keep growing. Pun intended. Pun intended. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, uh, Jungles, thank you so much for being here today. We look forward to seeing more from you. Uh, it was a real pleasure, and, and I, I love being able to talk about what we do, and thanks for the venue. You're welcome. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please contact me through the Florida chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects and drop me an email. Thank you for listening.